I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello, I'm Suzanne Moss, the Director of Learning and Public Engagement at the RHS. And I'm joined today by our Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, Fiona Davidson. Hello, Fiona. Oh, it's lovely to be here. So aside from education, one of my personal passions is garden history, 18th century, 19th century gardens and collections. So today I am very excited to be journeying back in time to explore some of the roles that women in particular have held in the garden in this period. So Fiona, you've just published an amazing book about this called An Almost Impossible Thing, The Radical Lives of Britain's Pioneering Women Gardeners. And I've been reading this over the past couple of days. It's such an amazing book. It's so inspirational, exciting, informative. These women were just incredible people. So let's jump right in. Can you set the scene for us a bit and tell me a bit about the roles that gardens could play in women's lives? Well, as you know, women have been gardening for centuries. But until relatively recently, I mean, a blink of an eye in historical terms, gardening professionally was pretty much impossible, hence the title, because the training was apprenticeship based. So you'd start, you know, as a, as a 12 year old boy and live in a single sex bossy as you worked your way up through the garden departments. But obviously that wasn't available to women. So it was kind of like looking into how did that all change and how did women get into professional gardening? It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think we see gardens now as a very kind of egalitarian space and it's a refuge from troubles. It can be kind of an escape and a place of joy. And they obviously they do serve that purpose, but they can be and they were so much more, weren't they? And for a lot of women at this time, they were kind of an act of protest, a place of healing, a place for exploration, discovery and even disruption as well. Yeah, I mean, the, as I said, the, because gardens were closed off to women, the very act of saying, I want to be a professional gardener, it's quite transgressive and a, a radical act. But the thing that I think as I dug into the stories of the women I really focused on, the thing that really struck me about their life stories was it, it wasn't just they wanted to earn a living and they wanted to garden. They wanted to garden in ways that made a difference. They were kind of very often addressing really big social problems, whether it was responding to the, the kind of ecological damage that the you know massive and rapid industrialization had caused, or it was to green slum areas in cities, or it was to do school gardening and educate children, or it was to do therapeutic gardening. It was gardening with a purpose, which I found really inspiring. 
That sounds so familiar. And it brings us to the heart of today's show. So today we are exploring the potential for gardens to be empowering, to be educational, to be equalizing and also radical spaces. We're focusing on two women from over 100 years ago who show that the roots of ecological gardening actually run further back than we might realise. And we're getting the inside scoop on the short-lived but dramatic tenure of an early gardening school for women. And we're coming back into the present to chat with therapist and writer Marcelle Farrell about how her English country garden helped her to get to the core of a question that had troubled her throughout her life. What is home? And I do want to add, to reassure you, we're not leaving you without any gardening tips today. We'll be sharing story-specific advice throughout the programme. So all you advice-oriented listeners, do stay tuned. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Fiona Davison. And me, Suzanne Moss. So we have a jam-packed show today, so let's get right to it. We are starting with the story of Olive Cockerell and Helen Nussey and their attempt to create an independent, greener life for themselves. So Fiona, take it away. We think of being ecologically conscious gardeners as being something that's come with a, an awareness of climate change and, and the science around that and the biodiversity collapse as being a modern thing but if you look back in time you can see people wanting to grow and treat nature respectfully because they were incredibly aware of the impact of industrialization on nature the world and the people around them and the negative effects of rapid industrialization right from you know the early 19th century onwards so when I was writing my book, when I was researching my book, two women who really personified this were women called Olive Cockerell and Helen Nussey. And they're interesting because they were both big disciples of John Ruskin, the art critic and writer and philosopher, and William Morris, who people will know from the kind of arts and crafts world. And both of those writers were very critical of the highly consumerist lifestyle that was built on conspicuous consumption and, and a small part of the society having access to lots and lots of over-luxurious material goods. And Olive and Helen didn't just go to the lectures, read the books and be kind of supporters of that as an idea. They actually wanted to live a different lifestyle. So Olive was an artist Quite a frail, fragile young woman, quite had a lot of ill health, but she had high ideals. She came from a family, her name, the Cockerell family, were very associated with William Morris and social reformers. She came from this world of high ideals. But and, and although she was an artist she and, and she did some social work in the city, she met Helen uh, Nussie, another idealistic young woman who worked in Westminster Hospital supporting poor people. And they decided to leave the city, live together, find a plot of ground in Sussex and live what was known at the time as the simple life. They both became vegetarians and they learnt to garden and they wanted to make their living growing fruit and vegetables using a technique called French gardening, which was just coming through to be popular at the time, which meant growing under glass cloches to grow crops out of season so you'd get a good price. And they wanted to live completely self-sustained lifestyle, close to nature, 
and see if they could live independent lives according to these ideals, these green, early, early green ideals. This was, you know, really unusual because they're both single women from a kind of conventional middle-class backgrounds and doing this was not in the picture of, you know, what their lives were mapped out to be. Um, as single women, the idea was that, you know, you lived a life of staid respectability, helping out your married siblings or looking after your aged parents, maybe doing a little bit of like genteel charity work. You certainly didn't, you know, abandon it all and go and live in a hut in the middle of a forest and carve out a, a market garden. They took it really seriously and they understood that they'd have to make a commercial success of it. They would have to earn their own living. So they went and found a French garden, so a garden that used these principles of growing under glass, and stayed there for two years to learn and learnt the trade and then set themselves up with their savings. So the whole thing about French gardening is that you're growing crops which can be grown intensively on a small spot, a small plot of land. And with the uh, kind of French gardening techniques, grow lettuces, radishes, melons, cucumbers, these kind of crops that they're not huge arable crops that you take acres and acres. You can grow intensively using manure to generate heat in hotbeds, uh, using glass again to generate heat and to grow crops out of season when there's a high demand for them and a, and a low supply. They managed to uh, build a business which involved making up hampers of fresh, organically grown produce that they sent out to customers by rail from their garden, which was, as, as it turns out, it's just outside Crawley, kind of under the flight path now of Gatwick. And they were making a real goal of it. You know, they had ups and downs and being creative people. They wrote a book, a little book about it, which is why we know how they got on. And Olive, being an artist, illustrated it with these beautiful line drawings. And the, we've got a copy of this book called A French Garden in England, and it's just charming. But they're really honest about how hard it was and how hard they worked. Their lettuce crop got decimated by rabbits and they had real problems with slugs and they got a duck. <laughs> that they wanted to keep to kill the slugs and the idea was eventually they'd eat the duck so as not to wet, you know, but then they couldn't bring themselves, they made friends with the duck and they couldn't bring themselves to eat the duck. By 1909-1910, you feel the world, it's all going well for Olive and Helen and, and kind of really chipper about it, they'd taken on some pupils and thinking yeah this is great and I sat in the West Sussex archives reading going through the letters and then I get to a letter from Helen Nussie to their landlord she writes I'm sorry I'm gonna have to leave the farm we can't pay the rent um, Olive has cancer and it's just boom and I was just I put the letter down I was so shocked and that's what happened Olive got stomach cancer in 1910, went downhill rapidly, went back to London, went to hospital, her family rallied round. Helen stayed with Olive for her last days. They hoped to get her back to kind of live her last few weeks, you know, back in the bungalow, but she was too ill. Um, and she died in the summer of 1910. Helen was devastated um, and, and 
there are really sad letters where she's I can't face it I can't face going back to the bungalow without Olive there it she said she describes it as crushing it was crushing to be there Helen goes back to social work in London and it just feels really really sad but the good news is that there is a happy ending of sorts because although Helen goes back to London Eventually, she kind of gets drawn back into kind of a green way of living in that she uses her horticultural knowledge to start volunteering for the London Garden Society after the Second World War, greening ex-bomb sites to make small pocket parks and things. So she starts, she, she gradually kind of brings that uh, idealism back and using her horticultural knowledge to, to benefit other people. So I think there is a happy ending in the end after all. And we are back. What a tragic end for Olive and Helen. I did choke up a bit in my office yesterday morning when I was reading the end of this story, Fiona. I'm glad no one came in because there were tears, I have to say. Good, good. That's what I intended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I wanted to ask you a few more questions. I mean, a central theme of this book and one thing that comes out of Olive and Helen's story is sort of the practical, determined women wanting to make a life for themselves through gardens, through plants. And you say that this was an almost impossible thing. And obviously Olive and Helen have proved that it wasn't quite impossible. But what made it so hard, do you think, for women to gain a foothold in growing? Well, the the, the title comes from, you know, a, a big authority, James Dalton Hooker, who was kind of big figure in botany, who said when he was asked, said it gardening as a hobby for women when all the work, hard work is done by a man is delightful, but as a career, it's an almost impossible thing. And it was almost impossible because of prejudice and social kind of convention that women, middle-class women in particular, ladies, to use the parlance of the day, were not meant to be able to do physical hard work. And it was thought to be demeaning and not right that they should garden. So it was kind of, it was busting social norms to do it. But as you say, determined women found a way. They either found a way by going to a college and getting an education and being able to pass an exam and being able to prove objectively they knew what they were doing. Or like Olive and Helen, they managed to get resources together to rent a little plot of land and just give it a go as an independent business. But it took huge reserves of determination. Helen and Olive's family massively disapproved of them doing it. So it's it's really impressive looking back that they kind of had that level of self-belief to just go out and do it. I mean, what determination it must have taken. You talked about women taking RHS exams and the earliest women who did that in the 19th century. And even when they blew the men out of the water and they gained the highest marks in the country, they still weren't taken seriously, were they? No, they didn't get the plum jobs. They didn't get the peachy head gardener jobs. And that's what's also made them... I think, be unjustly forgotten because they didn't get the big jobs, the kind of house and garden that gets preserved by the National Trust and gets kind of preserved and looked after, the kind of gardens they got to look after quite transitory and get built over or get changed radically over time. So so their mark, their physical mark on the world was often, you know, gone, disappeared from us. But I think even though they didn't, 
reach the conventional top of the tree horticulturally, I think we should still, well, of course, I think we should still remember them. I spent four years trying to find them. But despite that bias, I think we should remember them because I don't think that you have to be smashing glass ceilings or kind of, you know, getting the gold medals and the high prizes to make a difference. They quietly made a difference. So obviously Olive and Helen, for all of their determination, were not immune from the lots of the challenges that gardeners and horticulturists face today. They had their own problems with pests and diseases in the garden, didn't they? They did. They were hit by everything from rabbits, mice, slugs and snails. And of course, it's you can idealise gardens as these amazing spaces, but we've all got our problems. You know, now in September, we've got lots of things wreaking havoc on our own garden plants, things like box tree caterpillars and, of course, vine weevils, which are the bane of many gardeners' existence. Sue, tell me about vine weevils and how we spot them. Yeah, one of the most pernicious pests, aren't they? And one of those that we don't often see. We just see the damage, really, because they're quite elusive. One of the really good indicators that you have vine weevils is little notches on the edges of your leaves. So not in the middle of the leaves. There'll be little angular notches eaten in from the edge of the leaves. That's a sign that you have adult vine weevils. The grubs of vine weevils are more difficult to spot without digging up your plant. But one of the signs will be that your plant just suddenly dies. Because what they do is they eat around the crown of your plant and they eat the roots just inside the soil. And then your plant has no roots and it just keels over and dies. So if that happens or your plant is weakening, dig them up, have a look. And if you see lots of little, like little white C-shaped grubs, they're about a centimetre long and they look a bit like jelly beans, small jelly beans, definitely coconut flavoured, I would say. <laughs> so what do you do about them if you have vine weevils? For the adults, the main thing that people recommend really when trying to deal with adult vine weevils is either picking them off at night or grabbing an umbrella, opening it up, putting it under your plant and giving your plant a good shake. Then all the vine weevils fall off into your umbrella and you can relocate them to a safe distance from your garden, not in anyone else's garden, obviously. With the grubs, the best thing to do for those is nematodes, really. And sometimes I think we're a bit nervous of nematodes, but we shouldn't be. You can get them easily online now and those nematodes will prey on, on the vine weevil grubs. And hopefully that should mean that you have less of a problem and you can keep an eye on it because they might come back, but you could just need to get some more nematodes. Um, and hopefully you will never have an infestation as bad as the one when you first spotted it. Well, that is amazing. You almost made me want to find them. Coconut flavoured <laughs> stormtroopers. I mean, who wouldn't want to see those? So for our next story, we're coming back into the present, but staying with the theme of gardens as a space for freedom and exploration. This past year, Marcel Farrell published Uprooting, From the Caribbean to the Countryside, Finding Home in an English Country Garden. And she's here to share her story. I was asking myself the question of what is home in my book, and it's a question that I've asked myself for a really long time. I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, but my heritage is such that people have come from lots of countries all around the world to make me who I am. So I have ancestors who've come from different countries in Europe, uh, who've come from Africa, who've come from China, as well as I learned in the process of writing the book, had confirmation of an ancestor who was 
indigenous to the Caribbean, but I didn't know that for sure when I was a child. And so I always had this sense of, you know, where, where did I really belong? Where could I really belong? Did I belong in Trinidad? I never felt Satan somehow. One place where I always felt really grounded though was in a garden. I sort of grew up in gardens. I grew up in my grandmother's garden. Extended family living is still really common in Trinidad. And so we lived with my maternal grandmother until I was about eight or nine. And all of my earliest memories are from being in her garden. Uh, I had a little den in an Ixora hedge and I'd make fairy potions. And that was where I felt safe and where I felt free. And so I think that stayed, that feeling stayed with me. And when I had children of my own, a longing for a real sense of home came up again. And I think I really wanted to give them that same sense of safety and freedom in a garden. I was at first really unsure about moving to the countryside. I wasn't sure that that was for me. I didn't see many other Black Caribbean people living with countryside gardens. But we took a leap of faith. It felt like the right decision for our family. It felt like what we really needed to kind of thrive and grow. And so we found this place, fell in love with it at face sight, really fell in love with the garden. And yeah, that's, that, that was the beginning of, of the story, really. And the garden is an interesting one. It's not an easy garden at all. It's very steeply sloping. There's an ash tree up at the top and then a series of stone steps and walls forming terraces. And so there's very little flat space. We haven't really got any lawn. <laughs> we basically have a whole garden full of sort of raised beds, <laughs> essentially, formed by the terraces. And we have this heavy clay soil, which was really gray and compacted. And so I was looking at all these beds filled with gray soil and really feeling a bit kind of despondent <laughs> and a bit overwhelmed, actually, feeling like maybe I had bitten off more than I could chew, more than I could manage. And set to initially with mulching, actually, I just kind of instinctively felt that this kind of gray wasn't right, and <laughs> that it needed, it needed something else. I got tons of peat-free compost delivered and just set to mulching beds and then, you know, kind of waiting to see what would come up in spring. And so I set to with that, sort of planting up the space, trying to kind of fill it with as many flowers as I possibly could. That, that is my intention with my garden, is to fill it with flowers, 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 <laughs> um, and to try and have as many things in flower as possible at every point in, in the year. And actually, I did not recognize it at the time, but after we'd been living here for about a year or so, I had this sudden realization that a house that my parents bought when I was an early teen, as our kind of like forever home, had sat in the landscape in exactly the same way. It was a really steeply sloping site. And there were a couple of familiar plants as well. We, when we first moved in, there was this big grove, overgrown grove of bamboo that kind of sat right behind the house. And that was the same in this house that my parents had bought when I was a teenager. There was all, a lot of bamboo growing up on the hillside that kind of needed taming. We have a plant called the Mexican hydrangea. And actually that's just about to come into flower. It's not in flower yet. It's a really late autumn plant, gorgeous splash of late autumn color. 
And that looks almost identical to Exora, which is a bush in my grandmother's garden that I used to have my dens in. And so that really takes me back to my childhood and that sense of safety and play and kind of delight in, in the space. So it was magical to discover that plant here when it came into flower. So those, those were the kind of links, really, links of, and I think that is something that plants can do. You know, they can really, they link in with memory and with feeling really evocatively and powerfully. And so that sense of, of place and, and of time is just really potent. I suppose one thing that has been really meaningful for me in this garden is understanding the links between the gardens that I grew up in and English gardens and realising that actually they are both colonial creations, really. So many of the plants that we see as being just absolutely typical English cottage garden plants they're not native to England, you know. We love them and they've become a naturalised part of our, of our landscape and our emotional landscape. The rose, for example, which has so much meaning and resonance for England, is from China originally. And so having that realisation and kind of realising that actually that was the same for a lot of the plants that I grew up with in gardens in Trinidad, you know, that actually none of the typical garden plants in Trinidad are native to the Caribbean, actually. They were brought in as part of the colonial project. As that happened there, it also happened here. And so, you know, kind of bearing that in mind and trying to grow something beautiful and new out of that history, as much as that history has its parts that are terrifically painful and, and horrendous, feels like a really important act of repair, an act of reparation in a kind of real sense of the word. Now that we've been in the garden for three and a half years, I mean, it feels like home. It feels like home. So I suppose we really have put down roots here. But what I feel it's taught me is how to belong. It's taught me how to belong to a place, how to open myself up and let myself be vulnerable, let myself really love a place and let myself feel really loved by a place. And I think that's given me the gift of having a sense that I can be at home almost no matter where I end up, actually. Thanks there to Marcel. You can find a link to uprooting in our show notes. So one of the plants Marcel mentioned there in her garden is the Mexican hydrangea or Chlorodendron bungii. Have you you seen that, Fiona, around? I'm sorry, I wouldn't know if it hit me. You'll have to tell me. <laughs> it's not very common, but it's a beautiful shrub. It flowers in the autumn. It has like almost Barbie pink blooms. It's not, not really a common garden plant here, but it's pretty hardy, especially if you put it near a warm wall, not too difficult to find. And it really is beautiful and it grows quite tall. So definitely one to be recommended. And finally, for our last feature today, we are turning to the world of horticultural education. 
In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, middle-class women had limited professional options. You could become a governess, a seamstress or a lady's companion and that was pretty much it in terms of respectable professions. So when horticulture became a viable alternative in the late 1890s as training became available to women, it really proved a lifeline for many. One of these training centres was the Glind School, set up by Francis Garnet Wolseley. We caught up with garden historian Twigsway for the inside scoop. Frances Wolsey first attracted my attention through her books. I was lucky enough to get a copy of one of the first books that she wrote, Gardening for Women, in 1908. And there was this fantastic insight into the setting up of a gardening school early in the 20th century, an insight into what they were wearing, what they were doing, what her aims were, how she felt that women, you know, should be included in gardening careers. And I just thought this is fabulous. This is something that I've been missing throughout my, you know, garden history career. I've been talking about male designers and male planters and male plant hunters and explorers. And, you know, I've been doing, you know, teaching this mainly, to be honest, to women. I'd walk into the place I was going to be lecturing and I'd face kind of 20 delightful women. And then I'd speak about men for the next two hours of the lecture and that was just bizarre. So when I discovered this amazing woman and what she felt about women's role in the garden, that was just a really defining moment. So Frances Wolsey, she was born in 1872 and as some people may kind of already pick up from the name of Wolsey, um, her father was the Garnet Wolsey, who was very famous and very fated at that period for his military career. She was born, therefore, into a kind of, how do you put it, upper middle class, lower upper class, whatever, you know, semi-aristocratic family, who rose during her lifetime because of the success of her father's career. She ends up being, as everybody was in those days, kind of being launched on society, you know, having her coming out season. And something seems to have gone slightly awry. So what was normally to be expected, of course, was that you would, you know, come to the attention in your coming out season of all those amazingly kind of eligible bachelors who would then whisk you off your feet and hopefully land you in the lap of luxury. And that didn't happen. And instead, she started to become really fascinated with the parts of life that women of that class didn't usually become fascinated with. So she took over the control of the stables, the dairy and the poultry at home, you know, and her father away on campaign would be writing to her on things about horse feed or, you know, how are the cattle doing and stuff like this. So things never really panned out in the way that perhaps her parents had thought they would do. We get on to them moving the family take a house down in Sussex at Glind and again she kind of takes a bit of responsibility for the gardens and the functioning side of the house and the story goes that her mother was reading a local newspaper came upon an advertisement by a female gardener wanting a position and apparently the advertisement 
said that the woman had been let down in life and was now had a child and was on her own, you know, and had been trained in gardening. And Louisa Woolsey took pity on her and decided to hire her as a gardener. And she said to Francis, you know, can you deal with all this kind of thing? Can you, you know, see her, appoint her and all the rest of it? So Francis does all this and then suddenly seems to become inspired with the fact that if this woman is a female gardener, then so many others could be female gardeners. She gets financial backing, amazingly enough, from some friends who are sisters of Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence of the RHS. They lend her the money, in fact, they give her the money, to buy a plot of land and have a new house constructed on that land, and that land becomes the Glind School of Lady Gardeners. Now, she's not alone at this at the time. There's a lot of interest in training female gardeners. Around the late 1890s, it really starts. Several schools set up over, you know, a 20-year period. So she's not absolutely alone in doing this. But I have to say, as a self-publicist, Frances is amazing. Because when she sets up doing this, she is immediately writing articles to every single periodical, newspaper, whatever, that you can imagine. And she goes from just having this one hired lady gardener to, within a couple of years, having, you know, ten pupils at the farmhouse that she's dealing with. For me, the school's of particular interest because she was such an amazing self-publicist, because she wrote. So very few of the other schools do we have as much information about. She wrote three books in the end about the school and about female gardeners. One about the setting up of the school, one of them called Inner College Garden, which is really about the life of the school. And the, the next one, the next most famous one about women in the land. So she's really then responding to the, the First World War movement when women obviously do go on onto the land, both in farms and market gardens. And she widens out there. It's much more of a kind of women could set up on their own. They could set up in, in cooperation with each other. She had this vision that sort of led on from women being gardeners and trained gardeners, that women would also set up as, as cooperatives, you know, with each of them working at a small kind of market holding plot, but then coming together to be bigger cooperatives as well. So the message was getting out there, and I think that's, that's more important perhaps than the school that she ran in many ways. That, that influence, that chipping away, that seeing it in your, you know, the Sussex Gazette or whatever, or the Daily News or, you know, the lady. Well, they were all running articles by her about female gardeners and how important it was that women did something and didn't just get married. So that was, that was really important. That was Twig's Way. Twig's is working on a book about the history of women set to be published this winter, as well as a biography of Frances Wolsey, which will come out in late 2024. We'll keep you updated on these releases. 
So returning now, Fiona, to the central theme of the show and your incredible book, which everyone should read immediately, obviously. Uh, I just wanted to close out the show by asking, what was your big takeaway personally from writing An Almost Impossible Thing? What did you learn about the potential for gardens and about the role that women play in the world of horticulture? Well, I think the main thing was just this gardening with a purpose, that the reason why they were growing, they wanted to make the world a better place. And I found that really eye-opening. It was something we think of as a modern thing, you know, being concerned about the environment and the, the impact that, that green spaces can have on people's lives. But you look back at the Edwardian times and it's there even then. And I found that both comforting and inspiring. So I think that was my main takeaway. What a perfect note to end on. And that's all for this week. So from me, Suzanne Moss. And from me, Fiona Davison, goodbye and thank you for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>